1: Good evening, and welcome to a debate between candidates in Utah's Attorney General's race, the incumbent, Republican Sean Reyes and Democrat Greg Skortis. I'm Jennifer Napier-Pierce. I'm honored to moderate tonight's debate, sponsored by the Utah Debate Commission, an organization dedicated to educating voters and encouraging the civil exchange of ideas. We're live at KSL Studios in Salt Lake City, and you'll notice our candidates are socially distanced. There is no live audience in the studio, thanks to the coronavirus. We're committed to staying safe tonight. During tonight's debates, the candidates will answer questions from me, from other journalists, students from Dixie State University, and posts on social media. So if you're watching or listening live, send those questions to the hashtag#s UT Debates" and "Listen, Learn, Vote. I'll get to as many of those as we can. The candidates have agreed to the Utah Debate Commission's format, which includes one or two-minute answers, optional 30-second rebuttals, and possible follow-up questions. A coin toss determined that Sean Reyes will respond first to the initial question and will alternate who answers first from there. So let's begin. Describe one experience, either professional or personal, that has prepared you to become Utah Attorney General. And Mr. Reyes, you have a minute.
2: Thanks. As Attorney General, Jennifer, I've stood guard over Utah, protecting our children and families, defending our laws, lands, and liberties. Violent crimes are down on my watch. Utah is safer and stronger. I'm a proud Republican, but I work with Democrat friends across the state to get positive results for Utah. I really wanted this election to be about policies and positions, but my opponents chosen to go hyper-negative, making baseless accusations, attacking my integrity and my family name. So in my defense, I want to share some public reviews by his own clients. On avvo.com, a legal review site, 70% of them gave him the lowest possible score, saying things like, Greg took my case and lied to me about my options, or he lied to my face and misled me into accepting a deal, or he lied to me and my family. Most of his lies were told to allow him to do the least amount of work possible. There are many more like these on the site. So when my opponent goes negative, I ask you to consider what his own clients say about his credibility. Thank you.
1: Thank you mr. Scordis, you have one minute
3: Thank you Jennifer. Um, I'm proud to have the highest ratings among the the number one rating service that that judges lawyers in terms of their ethics and their competence. Um, I am proud to be uh, named every year uh, by many of the Utah magazines as the top lawyer in the state. I'm proud to have been to serve the Utah State Bar and been named Young Lawyer of the Year, Pro Bono Lawyer of the Year, the Scott M. Matheson Award Lawyer of the Year. And I'm proud to have served hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of clients over my career. Um, I didn't expect us to start out so negative, but since we are, I'm I'm happy to, to, to move forward. But I'm proud of the career I have. I'm proud of the reputation I have. And I'm proud of the fact that Utah lawyers, judges, and police all respect me and have supported me.
1: Thank you. Uh, I want to talk first about the role of the Attorney General, because there, people don't know quite what you do. <laughs> so the Attorney General enforces the law. It's not a policy-making position, but the office does often weigh in on policy. So um, Mr. Scordis, how would you decide when it's appropriate to offer an opinion on a policy, and you have two minutes?
3: So I I think what's important about that is this. Utah voters have gone to the ballot box two years ago and passed three ballot initiatives. They did that because the legislature was not acting in the best interest of Utah voters. They passed Proposition 2, Proposition 3, and Proposition 4. Those are matters that they have told the legislature and the attorney general that that, those are policies they want. Those are laws that they want. Those are things they want enforced. And our attorney general has done nothing on any of those three ballot measures to support the will of the people. Proposition two was to expand medical cannabis. It's been watered down entirely by our legislature and not supported at all by the attorney general. Proposition four was to create a redistricting commission, which has been watered down or not done hardly at all by the legislature and has been completely ignored by the Attorney General. Proposition three was to expand Medicaid, and 53% of Utahns went to the ballot box and passed that measure and said, we need expanded Medicaid in Utah. We need to be able to have Medicaid available to 102,000 additional Utahns. My opponent has not only ignored that entirely, but has joined a lawsuit which nationally, if he prevails would do away entirely with the Affordable Care Act. Now, that's not supporting the will of the people. And the will of the people dictate policy. The will of the people tell the attorney general, look, here's what we want. Here's what we need you to do. And he's ignored that. So the attorney general doesn't enact law or or support policy unless it's necessary. But when the people tell you what to do and you completely ignore it, you're not following uh, your mandate as the attorney supposedly... For the people.
1: Thank you. Mr. Reyes, you've weighed in on many policies through letters and front of the court briefs. What factors do you use to determine when it's appropriate to offer an opinion? And you have two minutes.
2: Sure, Jennifer. Thank you. As you said, the role of the attorney general is not to dictate policy. It's not to make policy. Uh, We're not the legislature. We're not even the governor who uh, signs uh, bills into law. And Unlike some of my predecessors and many of my current colleagues in other states, I have tended not to weigh in unless a policy affects my ability as the Attorney General to do my job unless it affects those people that I'm tasked to defend or protect, citizens of the state of Utah, businesses, the elderly, children. When we talk about the most important function, as was the premise of your question, the most important function of the Attorney General is protecting the people of Utah, especially the most vulnerable, kids, seniors, the other abled, those with mental health challenges, protecting their families, protecting their health and safety from violent crimes, from white collar frauds, from cyber crimes and other threats, things like opioids, things like teen vaping and teen suicide, all of these things that I've let out in the state of Utah. So again, I don't weigh in on policies. I don't take a proactive, I'm not an attorney general who believes it's my job to dictate to the legislature those who are elected by the people. And I support laws and defend them, even if I don't personally agree with them. Why? Because I took an oath of office to obey to enforce, to defend the laws that the people pass, whether it's through their elected representatives or whether it's through ballot measures. And so for me, again, the important part of all of this is that uh, my opponent would be an activist attorney general. He would substitute his own personal and political interests above that of what the legislature has passed. And again, he'll say anything to get elected. I supported medical cannabis here in Utah. I've worked with those. And I hope we get a chance to talk about that, the ACA, and other things, because I'll, again, prove that he's, uh, his facts are off on all of those.
1: Time. Uh, Mr. Scortis, a 30-second follow-up. Um, uh, Mr. Reyes has said that... Um, you, I guess I'm, I'm curious about the question of um, legislation that you fundamentally disagree with. Would you enforce that law? Absolutely. Unlike my
3: opponent, I
1: enforced laws when I was a prosecuting
3: attorney. I was a prosecuting attorney who handled death penalty cases. I didn't necessarily agree with the death penalty but I enforced that because that was the law. That was the will of the people. And I prosecuted those cases. My opponent hasn't prosecuted a murder case. He hasn't prosecuted a sex crimes case. He hasn't prosecuted a drunk driving case. My opponent has never prosecuted a speeding ticket. I will support the law of the people as they
1: enact those laws. Thank you. Mr. Reyes, uh, Mr. Scortis has said that you are ignoring the will of the people, particularly on those three propositions. Why did you not weigh in? You have 30 seconds.
2: Certainly not. Again, I have been supportive. The Attorney General, for instance, and I'll give you a good example on medical cannabis in case we don't get a chance to talk about that. There are a number of problems and issues that face us. The Safe Banking Act is something that I let out on nationally to help make sure that those who are lawfully obeying the laws under the medical cannabis rules here are able to work in an environment that's safe Those are the types of things that I do to support the laws, not just make statements like my opponent.
1: Thank you. Our next question comes from a student from Dixie State University, Hannah Shea. Hi, my name is
2: Hannah Shea, and I'm a student here at Dixie State University. My question to you is, do you support the
0: multi-state lawsuit against Obamacare? Thank you.
1: Uh, The first response is directed at Mr. Reyes. You have two minutes. Hannah, let me say up front,
2: even if the Supreme Court strikes down the ACA, no one is going to lose their health coverage during COVID. I do support the case. The high court, the state, and the federal government are never going to let that happen. Legislative leaders have assured me that that won't happen. And when it comes to pre-existing condition coverage, you don't have to have the ACA to provide it. A number of states covered it long before the ACA. Congress or the state of Utah can do the same with any new law. I have members of my own household with pre-existing conditions. I also have young adult children who are covered. As much as I like those aspects of the ACA, and as much as I want them to be part of any new law, the ACA as a whole is unconstitutional after the mandate penalty was eliminated. And that's the first reason I joined the lawsuit, the legal reason. The second's because it would not cost the state of Utah any money, beyond me and my solicitor general reviewing pleadings. Third, I've heard the worry, fear, and frustration of countless Utah's from every county and all political backgrounds for the past ten years as I've traveled up and down the state. They're suffering. Whether they're small business owners who can't afford costs and have to lay off employees, or everyday Utahns who make too much to qualify for even expanded Medicaid, but make far too little to afford health care. If you're like some Utahns and haven't felt their pain, count yourself lucky, because so many of your neighbors are far worse off. This is what you never hear about the ACA. It has increased coverage, but what good is coverage if you can't afford the care? High premiums, staggering deductibles, soaring prescription costs have devastated Utahns. Out-of-pocket maxes are at $16,300 per family in 2020. Add on average premiums over $17,000 for a family of four and you're over $33,000 in costs. Utahns can't afford it. The ACA has not lived up to its promises. It has not provided more affordable, faster, or higher quality care for the majority of Utahns, and for all of those legals, or, or for all of those reasons, legal and policy, I do support repeal of the ACA.
1: Thank you, Mr. Scordis. You have two minutes on the same question. So what we'll do,
3: if he prevails, is throw out the baby with the bathwater. What we'll do is we'll tell Utahns you don't get affordable care. What we'll do is we'll tell 53% of Utah voters not only. Are we going to completely ignore your mandate from November of 2018 to expand Medicaid, to include a base level of Medicaid coverage to people that are 138% of the poverty level at a cost of 15 cents per $100 spent, not only are we going to completely ignore that mandate, but we're going to take expanded Medicaid away. We're going to take the Affordable Care Act away, and we're going to do so saying, well, it's an illegal taxation, it's unconstitutional, with no alternative, with no alternative at all. He said, well, I have a plan, but no one's ever heard that plan. He's never pronounced that plan. There is a plan. It's Proposition 3. The voters passed a plan. There is a plan. There's the Affordable Care Act. Congress passed that plan. We have two plans in place, and he wants to take them both away. If he prevails, 200,000 Utahns will be without medical coverage. 100,000 just from not following Proposition 3, and another 100,000 if we do away with the Affordable Care Act. They will be without medical coverage that day. It's not, it's not socialized medicine. It's not the labels that they put on Democrats. It's affordable health care for all Utah's at a base level. I, I'm able to provide health care to my employees, and I've done that the entire time I practice law. And I'll continue to do that because I can take private coverage, and I'm able to afford that, but not everyone else is. And until we have something better in place, we need the Affordable Care Act, we need to expand Medicaid, and we don't need to say, well, I've got a plan, and it's up here, and I'll never let you, any of you know what it is because that's what he's done. Utah's voted. It's the mandate of the people. It was a majority of the people. It's been two years, and nothing has been done about it except talk.
1: Thank you. Mr. Reyes, 30-second rebuttal.
3: Yeah, his reference to Utah's voting, they
2: were voting assuming the act was constitutional. It's not, and he just said it himself. Even if it's not, we should keep it in place because we don't have a preferred plan you can't do that, Jennifer, just because you like certain parts of a law. If it's unconstitutional, it's unconstitutional. And that was my point before. Again, he's talking about Utahns who are losing coverage. Far more Utahns right now, because I don't think he's been out talking to them up and down the state, have coverage and can't get access to care. What good is it to have the coverage if you can't actually get
3: care?
1: Thank you. Mr. Scortis, 30 seconds.
3: Oh, I've talked to Utahns. I've talked to Utahns all over the state, and they say, We need medical coverage. We need some level of coverage. We need some level of taking care of people with pre-existing conditions. We need some ability to make sure that our bankruptcy courts are not full of people who can't afford their medical bills, and so they're, they're in bankruptcy. We need something. And the voters had to go to the legislature because these guys wouldn't do anything about it. That's not the way it works. We don't usually have voter initiatives, but in that case, we had to.
1: Um, this question coming from Twitter from Caden Guyman. As Utah's Attorney General, would you promise to protect the rights of all members of the LGBTQ plus community? And um, 30 seconds to Mr. Reyes.
2: 30 seconds to, to answer the question. Mm-hmm. Would I pledge? I would pledge to follow the law and absolutely stand up for all of those who need representation. And you know, I don't make the law, Jennifer, so I can't. Dictate policy. But those laws, we have worked with legislators to make sure there are protections for LGBTQ youth, for many others who are marginalized, who are, who are put out uh, on the fringes of society, and who are hyper vulnerable to things like addiction, to things like human trafficking, to things like
3: teen suicide. So, yes, I will support within the role of my office.
1: Mr. Scordis, 30 seconds.
3: And just as I have supported, when I worked as a prosecuting attorney and I prosecuted hate crimes, when I prosecuted crimes against people uh, from the LGBT community, when I, when I prosecuted crimes against all people who were not being treated equally. I am being currently endorsed by the LGBT community, and I'm proud of that. And that's because I have a record of supporting them. I have a record of prosecuting cases against them. I have a record of standing up for them, as I do for every Utah, and I'll continue to do that if I'm the Attorney General.
1: Thank you. Um, let's move on to criminal justice reform. The U S attorney for Utah has criticized the state's criminal justice reform efforts and a legislative audit released this week concludes that more needs to be done. What do you think of the criminal justice reforms that Utah has implemented in say the past five years and what changes would you advocate and, uh, you have, um, two minutes.
3: Thank you. Um, so, I'm going to go a little even past the past five years, Jennifer, and I'm going to tell you something that I did 20 years ago. Uh, myself and two other attorneys brought the drug court concept to Utah. That was one of the biggest criminal justice reforms in the history of our criminal justice system. It's a system that allows people with a drug problem to get real help, to go into a judge and say, I need help. I'm not going to contest my charges. I need help. Drug court has worked, and until we have something better, it's the best thing we have in this state, and it's the best thing we have in this country to prevent recidivism. Now, in the last five years, that's been expanded. It's been expanded to mental health court. It's been expanded to veterans court because those courts work. That's real criminal justice reform, and that's real things that we have actually done. I run a nonprofit at my own expense to take care of the aftercare needs of drug court graduates because we found that these kids were graduating... They were doing really well in drug court. Two years into it, they were excited. They were doing everything they needed to do. And then they graduate and go back to their old old lifestyle. And so we provide aftercare for them. Criminal justice reform takes on a lot of other hats, too. One is bail reform. What are we going to do about that? Salt Lake County has a a pretrial services agency so that we're not just holding people in jail, spending all that money, waiting for them to be adjudicated when, when they're sitting in jail at, with the presumption of innocence, allowing them to remain on the street with monitoring, with ankle monitoring, with daily call-ins, with counseling, with, with a urinalysis tests to make sure that they're staying clean, and making their court appearances. Those are criminal justice reforms that work instead of just filling our prisons and building more jails and making sure that they're always full to the brim. That's unfair to the taxpayers. It's unfair to the criminals who are in the system who have no prayer of ever getting out of it. Criminal justice reform means working with people, helping them through their problem, and making sure that they're not back in the system later. That's what's costing
1: us money. Mr. Reyes, two minutes.
2: Let me congratulate my opponent on his support for drug courts. That is a very healthy thing, something I support. But there's a reason Senator Mike Lee, Jennifer, said that no state AG in America has done more for criminal justice reform than I have. I helped him, Democrats in Congress, and the White House pass historic, the, the Historic First Step Act, which brought reform in the areas of corrections, confinement, and incentives. The act expands rehabilitation, reduces mandatory minimums, and does away with practices such as the shackling of pregnant women. In Utah, I've led prosecutions of some of the biggest drug cartels and traffickers, but helped addicts and low-level offenders get treatment rather than incarceration. In examples, the Bountiful Receiving Center, allowing nonviolent drug addicts to go to recovery beds versus jail. It's the most humane, just, and economically sustainable approach. We must fund and implement data-driven, research-based reforms like those I helped to get passed in HB 239 to help juveniles pay their debt to society but avoid incarceration and get support, education, and training. I helped bring reintegration programs like the Other Side Academy and One Heart to Utah for education and job skill training for adults, juveniles, transitioning back to society. I've supported drug courts, restorative justice, and key parts of JRI, but I've also called out JRI for a glaring lack of funding for treatment options, for lack of supervision and usable data, all areas that were recently uh, called out by the legislative audit. If these aren't fixed or funded, we will be continuing to create a revolving door of offenders. But I've led prosecutors statewide to create best practices for un- uniformity and transparency, and transparency work to clear the names of innocent people who were wrongfully convicted. I've worked to assure the adequate representation for the indigent, I've supported police reform but not defunding the police. I've balanced aggressively holding people accountable who break the law, but making sure the accused and convicted are fairly treated in the justice system.
1: Thank you. Mr. Skortis, 30-second rebuttal.
3: You know, having been on the streets, having been in courts, having been working with people personally, I think that I bring something to the table that my opponent does not. I've sat in criminal courts, both as a prosecuting attorney and as a defense attorney. I've sat in criminal courts as a victim advocate. I see what happens in those courts, and I see how to affect judges and how to affect probation officers and how to affect criminals so that they're not coming through that revolving door. Things that we've done have worked, and I would like to continue that through our drug court and other similar processes. Mr. Reyes? Really, I only want to
2: address my opponent's, again, maligning of my experience because it's inaccurate, I've done criminal defense cases. In fact, I've done cases bigger than the ones that he's done before I was AG and certainly while I've been attorney general. So I understand what it's like to have clients. I understand what it's like to have people stuck in the criminal justice system. That's why we've emphasized being aggressive and going after those who truly deserve prosecution and those who need rehabilitation.
0: Thank
1: you. Um, Let's move on to um, our next question from Emily Flores with ABC4.
0: Yes, thank you for your time tonight, gentlemen, and good evening to you. The Utah Attorney General's Office has faced questions and criticism from Republicans and Democrats on Capitol Hill over its contract for Banjo, the artificial intelligence system that utilized a number of state resources in an effort to alert authorities of emerging threats or problems. Some have called it Big Brother, others North Korea-esque in its surveillance that uses everything from traffic cameras to social media. Mr. Reyes, why was this a wise use of taxpayer dollars? And alternatively, Mr. Scordis, if the program works, would you use it? And
1: sure. um, Mr. Reyes responds first for one minute.
2: Banjo did no facial recognition, took in no personal private info. It aggregated data from public feeds to tell us when an emergency was happening, like a child abduction or an overdose. It didn't say who was doing it. It just sent us to where it was happening so we could intervene and it was a it is a wonderful tool we've asked the auditor to make sure that there are no inherent biases in the architecture because of some history of the founder of banjo damien Patton. but damien is a good person Who made a mistake in his youth. An essential part of my job is protecting privacy and liberties of Utahns. And as technology advances, perps will use all sorts of technology to try to get ahead of us. We need to stay ahead of them. You have to find that balance and make sure that privacy, make sure that civil liberties are always protected. But Banjo is a powerful and effective tool that many other states, a lot of federal agencies want to use. They're all waiting on Utah to see what the uh, audit says. And if it's true, we'll be able to get and do some transformative things in law enforcement we've never been able to do before.
1: Mr. Scortis, one minute. Banjo
3: is probably an illegal surveillance. Banjo is an incredible waste of money. Banjo is a way for a private entity to spy on innocent people. I was a prosecutor. He's never prosecuted. I've written search warrants. He's never written one. I've written investigative subpoenas. I've worked with police on ways to legally And correctly and consistently with the Fourth Amendment of the United States Constitution, get information about people, find out what they're doing, and if necessary, go into their home. But Banjo has no... No no restrictions at all. It's a private entity, and they can do whatever they want with that, with that information. That's, that's inappropriate. That's a violation of our Constitution. That's, that's something that's done by somebody who's, who doesn't care about sole source contracts, who doesn't care about the money that the, that the people are spending, who just wants to spy. If there's a balance between personal privacy and the right to protect people, and Banjo is, is in no way following that balance.
1: Thank you, Emily. Uh, we'll next go to our question, another question from a Dixie State University student, Alice Ferrari.
0: Hello, my name is Alice Ferrari, and I'm a student here at Dixie State. My question is, what sort of police reforms do you think are necessary here in Utah? Thank you. Mr. Scordis. you'll
1: go first for two
0: minutes.
3: Thank you. Um, I think police reform is coming down the pike. I think police reform is something that we absolutely need to do. I've taught over 400 hours at utah's police academies i've worked with police and i work with them daily i've taught classes on police reform as recently as the last few weeks and i have found that police while reluctant at first are willing to consider reform we don't have chokeholds in utah we never have Uh, we don't have some of the other problems that other states do but we do have, as I've indicated before, the ability for police to go into homes on something like a no-knock warrant. I've written no-knock warrants. Those are the things that scare the heck out of you. He's never written one. I don't know if he's ever seen one. I've worked with police when they need to go in on no-knock warrants. Those are, those are the things that we need to be careful before we use in the future because they are fraught with problems and they're fraught with the, the kind of situations that we've seen nationally. We don't have a problem here in Utah with our police like other states do. And I'm not saying that we're perfect, but I think Utah police are the best in the country. Um, I've invited voters statewide to ask any police officer, to ask any police officer they know, who they would support for attorney general. And, 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 and I, I've heard my opponent say the same thing. And, and I'm, I'm begging. I'm, I'm hoping that you do. Uh, Because I work with police, I've worked with them for years, I've investigated officer-involved shootings, I've represented police in officer-involved shootings, and I continue to do that, um, and I will continue to do that. I I work with police all the time, and I support what they do, but I recognize that in certain situations, something needs to change. Police need to be trained in de-escalation. They need to be trained better in recognizing the inherent biases and the inherent prejudices that we all have, that every one of us has, so that we're not stopping people more because of their color than because of their conduct in a vehicle. Um, That's the kind of police reform that needs to happen, and that's the kind of police reform that I have found in my training with police throughout the state they're willing to consider and that they're willing to do.
1: Mr. Reyes, two Let me minutes.
2: talk about police generally and then reform. I'm honored to stand with law enforcement. I stand with them in the field when we're out taking down child sex predators or human traffickers. During COVID, I raised private funds for PPE to protect them and other responders. I stand with their families, like Nate Lydes, when they're lost in the line of duty. But I also hold them accountable if they break the law or they abuse their power. I've investigated and prosecuted cops, not just at the line level, but from the ranks of leadership. They know I'm fair and care about due process. It's why so many chiefs, sheriffs, and county attorneys endorse me, and I would please ask you to ask your county attorney, your chief, or your sheriff, who they're supporting. The Fraternal Order of Police endorses me. In fact, my opponent's been a lawyer for them, but the FOP still trusts me more for this job. I'm the top law enforcement leader in Utah, but as the first statewide elected minority, I'm not immune from hate. My family and I get racial threats and hate mail. It's one reason I worked so hard with many Democrat friends for years to pass a hate crimes bill, even when many Republicans opposed it. As to reform, we do need some in policing. It's why I worked with legislators on emergency reform right after the terrible George Floyd murder. It's why I worked with my dear friend Janetta Williams of the NAACP and many others on even more reform. Defunding the police is not the answer. If we want to recruit, retain, and train the highest caliber of professionals, you can't pay less. But we can still fund restorative justice and after-school programs. We don't need to choose between them or the police. When it comes to reform, Utah's been a national leader for the past six years. I helped the legislature pass mobile crisis units pairing cops and behavioral experts. In 2014, I created a virtual simulator program including de-escalation training, cultural awareness, and how to use, avoid the use of force whenever possible. We've trained nearly 4,000 officers, and Utah has been held up as a model of training in the United States. This is the kind of leadership I will
3: continue to bring as Attorney General.
1: Mr. Scordis, 30 seconds.
3: I'm proud to be the attorney for the Fraternal Order of Police. I'm proud to be the attorney for the Utah Highway Patrol Association. And I'm proud that their members call me and know that they can call me 24-7. I recognize that the FOP has endorsed my opponent, and that's fine. That's their... That's their leadership. The rank and file support me. And I would invite any Utah to ask a cop, ask the person in your neighborhood, ask the person in your church, ask the person at your school who they support, and ask them more importantly who they would call if they ever got in trouble.
1: Thank you. Mr. Reyes?
3: Reform, Jennifer, can't just be at the
2: local level. We need federal and state policies that stop making police the default solution to drug addiction, domestic violence, homelessness, and other challenges that we've largely neglected as a society. Police don't want to respond to those calls. They aren't particularly equipped to deal with them and they don't want to take them to jail, but that's their only option. So things like the Bountiful Receiving Center that I talked about before, I'm very proud of working with Chief Tom Ross, a friend who also supports me. Those are the kinds of reform that Utah needs.
1: Thank you. If you're just joining us, we're about halfway through a debate with candidates Sean Reyes and Greg scordis I'm Jennifer Napier-Pierce. We're still taking questions on this broadcast, use the hashtags UT Debates and listen, learn, vote on social media. Our next question will be uh, from Lad Egan from KSL.
3: Let's say on this topic of police reform. We had a summer of protesting calling for that reform, some calling for defunding the police and then using that money for other resources. My question is, what police reforms do you support? And what about this talk of defunding police? If you were to adjust budgets for police departments, where could that money be used better?
1: Mr. Reyes, uh, you have two minutes.
2: Lad, I mentioned a number of them. I don't support defunding the police because I don't think it's a binary choice between having to have what many who want in the community, more community boards, more programs. I think you can have them both. They cost money, and I believe law enforcement, the leaders that I've spoken with throughout the state of Utah who support me would stand with those who want reform and ask for those resources in addition funding police. So in other words, you don't have to defund or dismantle the police. You can create programs like we have with mobile crisis units. This is a bill that we supported, that I've worked closely with the legislature to send out healthcare therapists, professionals, along with law enforcement, because we know domestic violence situations. We know that addiction uh, interventions can be deadly, they can turn violent in a, in a moment's notice. So you have traditional law enforcement there, but you also have those complementing traditional law enforcement with a different skill set. Those are the types of reform That I've pushed. I've also pushed for mental, behavioral health support for law enforcement, holistic health, not just the kind you can get in an EAP, but true with specialists who understand what it's like, PTSD, out on the streets working on the horrible cases that they have. Our Internet Crimes Against Children Task Force that I oversee at the AG's office, and child porn and gigabytes, those types of things. The virtual system is one that's been held up throughout not just the United States, but the world. As the model, can Wallentine, a good friend, help me design that system? And again, we layer in not just sensitivity training towards racial backgrounds, but to those dealing with others, those who are dealing with the hearing impaired community, with the autism community. I have committees that work with me in my office to make sure that all of these types of reforms are better protecting those communities and also not taking away from keeping our police force strong. Mr.
3: Scordis, two minutes. Interesting that he'd mentioned Ken Wallentine, who called me not long ago when one of his officers was in trouble and said, "Greg, I need some help." Um, uh, police reform needs to take the 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 view, lad of more openness, more transparency. When we investigate police officers in these officer-involved shootings, which I respond to and which I have responded to for 20 years, we need to make sure that the public knows what's going on. We need to set a timeline when body cams will be released, when dash cams must be released, when the findings of these investigations will be released. We can't have officers sitting home being paid by their departments on paid administrative leave while an investigation is going on. We need to make sure... That these, in, that these shootings are investigated, that they're investigated fairly. They should be investigated by the Attorney General's office, but there's a, there's a level of distrust there, and so they're investigated by different county attorneys in sort of a haphazard way that doesn't make sense. When a police officer is involved in an, an officer-involved use of force, we need to make sure that there's an independent and there's a fair investigation. Taking it one step further, when an officer has been disciplined, when an officer is in trouble, when an officer has lost his or her certification... We need to make sure that those records are available to other agencies so that we're not hiring bad cops, so that we're not recycling bad cops in the system, so that those disciplinary histories, those disciplinary matters are made public and they are made available, and that they stay with an officer throughout his or her career, so that we can make sure that we're not getting bad cops. And I've represented a lot of officers who have made mistakes, and and they can be forgiven, and they can be retrained, and they can be taken out of the system for some time until those matters are resolved. But until that's done, and until we can convince the public that we're really dealing with these officers fairly, that we're not just covering up, that we're not just hiding things. There's going to be some level of distrust in the way that we're dealing with police officer and their officer-involved shootings and their use of force.
1: Thank you. Uh, Yes or no question. Do you support Black Lives Matter, Mr. Skortis? Absolutely,
3: yes. And they support me, too. Mr. Reyes. I support the statement
2: Black Lives Matter. I don't support the movement, per se. Let's
1: move on to another student question from Dixie State University, Caden Butterfield. Hi, my name is Caden Butterfield. I am a student studying marketing at Dixie State University. And my question for you is, do you support a broad mask wearing mandate? And if so, do you think it would be legal? Thank you. Uh, first response from Mr. Scordis for one minute.
3: Utah's done a poor job in dealing with the COVID virus. Um, we now have 100,000 confirmed cases and we're coming up close to 600 deaths. The reason for that is because we're afraid. We're afraid to initiate a mandate. People say, well, I have a constitutional right to wear a mask. It's not in the Constitution anywhere. We've had other issues similar to this where we've seen where the state coming in and making public safety decisions has made sense. People complain about seat belts. They don't complain anymore because they know it makes sense. People complain about having to put their child in a child safety seat. They don't complain about that anymore because they know it makes sense. People complain about not being able to smoke indoors at your office. They don't complain about that because they know it makes sense. A mask mandate in this state, a hard, fast mask mandate in this state for two weeks would get our numbers down. Our numbers are up so high. And my opponents doing these rallies and gatherings where there's no masks, there's no social distancing. It's irresponsible. It shows a bad example. I'm not saying shut down the economy, but I'm saying there's a common-sense approach to this.
1: Mr. Reyes, you have one minute. Yeah, and I want
2: to just tail on the last question because I think it's you can't answer in just a yes or no answer, especially something as complex. Supporting BLM, I have so many friends who are part of the BLM movement who I believe uh, are people of goodwill who understand what I understand, that everyone's lives. Uh, matters and black lives don't matter any less than anyone else. But some of that movement's been hijacked by a violent element. Uh, we investigate some of those uh, cases. And until Black Lives Matter is willing to denounce the violence, denounce the lawlessness of that element, then I think it's hard to say I support the entire movement. I support a lot of people in the movement. I support the spirit behind the nonviolence and the protesting and exercising of the First Amendment. Mask mandates, um, I can't respond, which is part of the reason I'm defending those right now. And um, again, I asked the debate commission, they knew that I couldn't respond to those questions. But if you want me to talk about uh, mandates in general, and you want me to talk about COVID generally, uh, I can, but uh, I think it's an unfair question.
1: Mr. Scordis. you have an extra 10 seconds.
3: I I support Black Lives Matter to the extent that they peacefully protest. I do not support any violent protest.
1: Thank you. Let's move on to another question from Ben Winslow, Fox 13.
3: Good evening, gentlemen. These are questions for you individually, Um, beginning with Mr. Reyes. Why did you and your campaign uh, choose not to disclose that you'd spent tens of thousands of dollars in contributions from members of the Kingston polygamist family who were under investigation by the federal government when your campaign initially said it was in escrow to act as a firewall.
2: Ben, that was, we didn't even know that the Kingstons were under investigation until after they executed those warrants. Um, my, my team made a mistake by trying to go above and beyond what was required. There was no requirement legally or even ethically, that we had to return money while they were under investigation. Again, we're going back to before they were prosecuted. We didn't take that case because the federal government had the case. It was a federal tax case. We helped the federal government with that case. But all my team member said, and I've admitted that he made a mistake, and I own that, was, look, we want to go above and beyond what's required. We're not going to return the money. We're going to actually put it in escrow. When we checked... With our accountant and our FEC lawyer, they said you can't do that because the money has already been spent, was spent a couple years ago, and it's against FEC rules to be able to segregate new money to address that issue. So again, I think we didn't knowingly spend money, uh, or we didn't spend money knowing these people were convicted felons. At the time, they were giving donations to the governor, many of the legislature, to the Utah Jazz. They were sponsors at the University of Utah nobody's ever questioned the propriety of taking it. The federal government looked at it and said, you did nothing wrong. They didn't even require us to return the money because they knew there was no impropriety. Lieutenant governor's office didn't look at it and give us any uh, bad marks. So again, I don't think there's any question that it was legal to take it. It was legal to use it. Later, when we found out that they were prosecuted, we worked with the federal government. And again... My office has continued to prosecute other cases involving Kingstons. We had a huge white-collar fraud case with pawn shops recovering millions of stolen goods and prosecuted a number of the Kingstons. Again, so any implication that somehow dollars from the Kingstons gave them any special favor or treatment are absolutely untrue.
3: Mr. Scordis. All right, Mr. Scordis. question for you. You've been facing criticism as well from for your work as a prosecutor back in the 1990s where 27 inmates were released from jail because charges were not filed. Court officials blamed prosecutors, of which you were one. Prosecutors blamed the judge. So what do you have to say about it now, and did you make a mistake? Uh, that's a good question, Ben. I was the chief deputy at the Salt Lake County Attorney's Office at the time, and I was ultimately responsible for that. Uh, when a person is accused of a crime and they're sitting in a detention, the state, the government, the prosecution, has 72 hours to charge them. We had a group of people that we couldn't charge. My opponents never sat in, in judgment or ever had to make those decisions to charge. And so we were unable to get those people charged by 5 o'clock on Thursday or whatever the day it was. And so they were released. That was, that was because we couldn't get our police officers together, we couldn't get our evidence together, and we couldn't ethically... And morally and legally, hold 27 people in jail until we had our act together. They were they were subsequently taken into custody. Those that were those that were uh, problematic, they were subsequently charged. And I'm happy to say this, Ben that not one of those 27 people harmed a person while they were out. Not one of those people got in trouble while they were out. Not one of those people embarrassed the Salt Lake County Attorney's Office. They were released because we were under a mandate from the court to either put up or shut up within a certain period of time, and we were unable to get that done. We thought a judge would give us an extension, and typically... In, in my experience, if you ask a judge for an additional 24 hours or 48 hours, they will provide that. But this judge wouldn't. I can't blame him. He was a fine judge. He was a personal friend of mine. And he said, it's 5 o'clock and you guys missed the deadline and we're booting these people out of jail. Um, that, that was his right. And, and in fact, he, he may have done the correct thing. We thought we'd have some additional time and we didn't. I, I apologize for that. Um, I was one of the attorneys that worked at the DAs at the time. Uh, ultimately, I was the chief deputy, so it, it fell on me, and and I've owned that from the beginning, and I'll own it today. Uh, but it wasn't something that we did uh, willy nilly or with the intent, or some some, or that anyone was harmed as a result of that decision. We followed the law.
1: Thank you. Um, let's move on to um, a related question on transparency and ethics generally. Is it appropriate? For the attorney general to take donations from people or entities that are subject to prosecution, and at what point does it become inappropriate? Uh, Mr. Sk- Skortis, um two minutes.
3: So I'm going to follow up on something that Ben asked my opponent earlier. First of all, the answer to that is no, it's not appropriate. Um, and, and and with all respect, he misstated some of the essence of that donation that he received. Um, the Kingstons, that Washakie chemical, gave him in 2015, at the same time the United States government was fining them $3 million for tax fraud. They gave him another $30,000 sometime thereafter, at the same time the United States Attorney's Office was investigating them for fraud. This entity had no legitimate purpose, and they had no reason why they would give a sitting attorney general $51 thousand dollars in campaign contributions except to do exactly what he did do and that is turn his head turn his head while they were running railroad cars through utah purportedly full of biodiesel when they were in fact full of water while they were taking advantage of utah taxpayers to the tune of five hundred million dollars in tax credit the federal government doesn't take fifty one thousand dollars to turn its head nor should they nor should he but he did Five of those members are currently in federal custody through no help of the attorney general's office, through no work from the attorney general's office, but because the federal government, the United States attorney's office, doesn't take $51,000 campaign contributions to turn its head. And that's exactly what happened here. He'll deny it and he'll make excuses for it. And I've heard him say, well, everyone was taking their money. And and gee, I would have wouldn't have taken it if I'd have known. And if you've ever sat in a criminal courtroom, you know that that's what the criminals say to the judge. Well, I was stealing from my employer because everybody was stealing from my employer. And the reason I, uh, I didn't know those drugs were in my pocket, that's, that's the same thing he's saying. I didn't know it was bad money, and everyone else was doing it. Those are lame excuses. You're the attorney general. Do some vetting. Find out what this group is about. The rest of America knew what they were doing, and you took $51,000 because it went into your campaign pocket.
1: Time. Mr. Reyes, two minutes.
3: Yeah, he misstated facts again, and I'm just going to debunk
2: this myth that's come up in 2015, 16, 17, 18, and, and again, because he just keeps regurgitating misstatements and things that are absolutely not true. The majority of those donations came in 2014 when everybody else thought that Washakie was the greatest thing on earth in terms of clean energy. I don't have any problems taking donations from corporations or companies that want to have good government. They know I'm fair. They know I balance going after those who are real predators with making sure the business community is not shaken down by regulators. And I have never, there's never been a credible complaint about my office in terms of campaign contributions. The Daniels Fund, which is a highly respected national Ethics think tank gave me in my office an award because of the transparency, the ethics and the integrity. When I won in 2008, the National Young Lawyer of the Year Award, it was because of leadership, ethics, integrity and skill and wins in the courtroom. We've received awards even this year for our integrity and our ethics. And so again, he wants to keep bringing this up just because he brings it up a thousand times doesn't make it any more true. No one's ever taken any action on it. You would think that if it were something serious, the federal government that he said was so interested in this case that they would have at least taken the money from us or done something. They would have made sure that people knew that we were in the wrong. Absolutely not. They knew we did nothing wrong. The lieutenant governor's office knew we did nothing wrong. And so he wants to keep bringing this up. And he's made these accusations over and over again for six months on his website, calling me corrupt, calling me a criminal, And that's why I've responded. I haven't even talked about him. I haven't talked about him on my website. I haven't talked about him in any of the meetings. I want to talk about the issues and the policies. But since he keeps wanting to make these allegations, I'm happy to respond.
1: Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Let's move on to a question from the Utah Debate Commission website from Alex Yoshida. What are your feelings about joining other states' attorneys general in pursuing Supreme Court rulings on federal legislation. And it looks like, um, Mr. Reyes, you have one minute.
2: Can you repeat the question, Jennifer? Uh,
1: If it comes back up, I can. What are your feelings about joining other states' attorneys general in pursuing Supreme Court rulings on federal legislation?
2: You know, we do that all the time in terms of not just uh, joining the case, or writing an amicus brief. Sometimes we write letters in support, and most often it's with our colleagues around the country because there is an efficacy in joining together. There's power and leverage in bringing multiple voices together. What people don't realize is the vast majority of the work that we do in the AG's office is nonpartisan, it's bipartisan. I work with my Democrat colleagues around the country all of the time. We join bipartisan letters that help us protect our state's rights, and that's usually the fight. The federal government's trying to minimize our ability as state law enforcement officers to be able to do our job and protect our citizens, protect our people. And so in those cases, I absolutely will join with my Democrat colleagues, my Republican colleagues, independent colleagues around the country to try to influence and make sure that we have case law, that we have policy that comes down, allowing us to do our jobs, protecting the citizens of
3: our state.
1: Thank you. Mr. Scordis. one minute.
3: You know, the attorney general is the attorney for the people, for the attorney for the people of the state of Utah, not for Washington, D.C., not for a particular political party. And a perfect example of that is the lawsuit that he's talked about repeatedly, which, if successful, would do away with the Affordable Care Act. He's joined a small group of far right Republican attorneys general to take that away. Now, If you want to join a lawsuit, that's fine, but make sure it's consistent, that it's consistent with the will of your clients, the people of the state of Utah, who have told you, Sean, who have told you in no uncertain terms in November of 2018 that they want expanded Medicaid. So to join a lawsuit, especially during a pandemic, especially at a time when we have 200,000 Americans who have died, to take away health care just because it's politically expedient for you is 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 senseless. It's 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 wrong. It's unethical. It's immoral. And the timing of that couldn't possibly be worse.
1: Let's Just move on. To that. 30 seconds.
2: <laughs> sure. That's fear-mongering, Greg, and you know that. There, no one's gonna have their health insurance coverage taken away. The court's of not gonna allow that. Of course they are. No, of course not, they are. Let me finish. If you do away can, with can the I Affordable finish?
3: Care Act, there won't be affordable Please care. Don't say time. that.
2: Greg, Don't You're say lying. that. No, absolutely. You know that the legislature's right here, they're sitting and and they have promised us that they will have mechanisms in place. But beyond that, Google, Volkswagen, and I need about 10 more seconds because he kept interrupting me, Equifax, the opioid case, these are all cases that you conveniently overlooked. This is what we do as real attorneys general. This is what we do as real attorneys, Democrats and Republicans. We go out and we sue companies like Google and like Volkswagen. And we bring back $15 billion. and We bring back hundreds of millions of dollars to our states. That's what I do when I join lawsuits, not just Partisan message bills, like you were suggesting.
1: Uh, he went over about 25 seconds, so we're going to give you uh, a time to to respond. You were Mr. criticized
3: by your own Republican legislature for your failing to join the opioid lawsuit. You've been criticized by me, and I've never called you a criminal, and I've never called you corrupt for failing to abide by the will. It's of on the your people
2: website. What's pay to play? Is that? Is it, what, oh, what's pay corruption? Pl- well, what,
3: what is can, that? Can we spend five minutes on pay to play? I'm dying for that no. one, Sean. No. I'm dying for that yeah, one. Yeah,
2: let's talk, let's talk about You're that. You're for That's, sale. You've got a
3: for sale sign on your forehead the size of yeah. Central Park. Um, but, joining, but but th- our legislature has said we need to join those lawsuits we don 't want, and he has completely ignored that he 's joined the lawsuit to do away with the Affordable Care Act, and he could say, "Well, we need to make sure that we've got uh, i 'm leading the lawsuit on opioids. Get your facts ready. Right. you say anything i can 't believe it. your clients are absolutely right. You just lie repeatedly
2: to just let people think whatever you want greg i 'm in charge of we 're leading the opioid Gentlemen. lawsuit. <laughs>
1: I need to interrupt. It's time for our final statements now. We've reached our allotted time, so each candidate will now have one minute for final statements. And Mr. Reyes, you'll go first.
2: Fellow Utahns, I have the work ethic, integrity, and experience to keep protecting you, your families, and our state. We may not agree 100% of the time, but I care, no matter who you are. My opponent's attacked me for six months because he says he cares, but about what? Listen to what his client said on Avo and LawyerRatings.com with 90% failing reviews. He embodies everything bad about the profession. He does not care about his clients, only cares about getting on TV. Huge ego gets in the way of practicing law, belittles rape victims, zero compassion, huge waste of money, worst lawyer I've ever used. He's a fraud. He didn't do any work. Takes a lot of money up front, then just tells you to plead guilty. He'll destroy your life and family unless your case will get him publicity. Wish I would have lit my $15,000 on fire instead of giving it to Scordis to furnish his expensive office. These are not my words, ladies and gentlemen. These are from the people who put their lives and liberties in his hands. And now he wants you to do the same. I rest my case. I ask for your vote. Sean Reyes, Utah Attorney General.
1: Mr. Scordis, you have the final minute.
3: I'm proud of my reputation as an attorney. I'm proud to have served the people of the state of Utah for 38 years. I'm proud to have practiced in every single county in this state. I'm proud to have worked with every single county attorney in this state. I'm proud to have tried cases all over the state. I'm proud of my reputation as a, as a prosecuting attorney. I'm proud to have rec- rec- represented victims as the attorney for the Utah Rape Recovery Center. And, and I will continue to do that. I prosecuted the hard cases. I prosecuted the murder cases. I prosecuted death penalty cases. I prosecuted serious rape cases. He hasn't prosecuted a speeding ticket. And, and I will stand by my record every day. He posts these sites that I'm a lawless liberal because I uh, allowed 27 people to get out of jail. And people say, well, why don't you attack his record as a prosecutor? He doesn't have one. He's never prosecuted a case. He wouldn't those. know how. He wouldn't have the first clue how to do that. I've done it. I'll continue to do that. I'm, I'm extremely proud of my record. Ask any judge, ask any lawyer, ask any member of the attorney general's office who Thank they you. support.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the spirited exchange, Greg Scordis and Sean Reyes. Thank thanks you, so Jennifer. much for joining us tonight and best of luck to both of you during these final days of the campaign. Our thanks goes to all of our broadcast partners and to the Larry H. and Gail Miller Family Foundation, the Dolores Story Eccles Foundation, and doTERRA for sponsoring tonight's debate. And a special thanks to Utah Debate Commission co-chairs Karen Hale and Wayne Niederhauser. And to Nina Sliding, the Debate Commission's Executive Director. Voters, the choice is now yours. You can mail in your ballot, drop it into a designated ballot box, or take it to the post office. Just make sure it's postmarked by November 2nd. But please, just vote. Every vote counts. On behalf of the Utah Debate Commission, I'm Jennifer Napier-Pierce. Thanks for tuning in.